Early March. So I want to get your uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Andres Lombana Bermudez, and I am pleased to welcome you to our background luncheon series today with Shannon Dos Megan. Before we start, I would like to make some important announcements. Please be aware that our luncheons are webcast live and video recorded for posterity on our website. As for the Twitter conversation, we are using the default hashtag Bergman so people can ask questions and participate online. We will do now a quick round of short introductions for all the participants in the room. Please state your name and affiliation. Uh, we do it in a very fast way. My name is uh, Andres Lombana Bermudez, and I am a fellow at the Bergen Center. I'm Greta Hover, I'm the Bergen Center. I'm a postdoc in government. I'm Chip Bruce, I, um, University of Illinois. Hi, I'm Matt Zagaya, I'm at the Berkman Center. I'm Saul Tannenbaum. I'm a local blogger, activist, and instigator. <clears throat> Robert Chu, retired computer science. Hal Bloom, I'm a retired librarian. Kenneth Thomas, UC Berkeley Rhetoric. Barry Gray, uh, Berkman Fellow. Padovi Fartel, Union of Concerned Scientists. Jessica Thomas, Union of Concerned Scientists. Amy Tsung, Berkman Affiliate. Ken Carson. Newly arriving Berkman Fellow. Mm -hmm. Josh Redstone, uh, local entrepreneur. Hey, darling, Berkman Fellow. Hi, Rick Ross, uh, Berkman Fellow. Sarah Newman, Berkman Affiliate and Artist at Meta Lab. Peter Damrosch, Center for Geographic Analysis. I'm Arash, Berkman Center. Mindy Kleinis, Harvard University Press, retired. Amy Zang, Berkman Center. Tiffany Lynn, Berkman Center. Uh, Christopher, business consultant. Chat over here, Harvard alum. Stan Jones, Berkman Center. Vito Kalmar, uh, prospective Berkman Fellow, and <laughs> world record holder for a number of wearables worn continuously. Michelle Raymond, visiting researcher at the Berkman Center uh, from University of Geneva. Viva Salina, the same. Zach Goldman, student at the Graduate School of Education. School of Engineering and Applied Science and a new fellow. Abraham Williamson, one hour at the law school. Kathy Toyle, also at the law school. Lisa Lipstein, also at the law school. Edward Buecher, computer programmer. <laughs> okay, so welcome everybody. Uh, today we are lucky to have uh, Shannon Dos Megan, uh, Bergman Fellow and, and friend, who I have had the pleasure to meet uh, for her work at the public lab and as well for our work with the Inclusive Innovation Group here at the center. Uh, she will talk about civic technology and community science and her experience building a model for public participation in environmental decision-making processes. Shannon is one of the founders of the Public Lab and the executive director of the nonprofit, and she's based in New Orleans in Cambridge. With a background in community organizing and education, Shannon has worked with environment and, environment, with environment and public health groups across the United States addressing declining freshwater resources, coastal land loss, and building participatory monitoring programs with communities, neighboring industrial oil facilities, and impact by the BP oil spill. That said, I'm gonna turn it over to Shannon. If members of the audience have questions during her talk, please feel free to raise your hand and ask, 
After the presentation, we will also have more time for questions and discussion. Uh, please join me welcoming Shannon Dosmegan. And there's a couple in the corner as well. All right, um, so thanks everybody for coming today. Uh, this is a really exciting group. Um, we have a union of concerned scientists, we have librarians, we have law students. It's a, a really great mix, um, something that's also reflected within uh, the work that Public Lab does. Um, so I'm happy to have all of you here and uh, lending your different expertises and experiences to the discussion as we move forward with it. Um, so as Andres said, uh, please at any point when I'm talking, um, if you have a comment, if you have a question, uh, just go ahead and you know, raise your hand or, or say it. Um, our, our work, uh, self-noted, um, as well as noted by others, is quite complex. Um, there's a lot of different moving pieces to it. Um, and so if anything is just not quite making sense to you, let's just, let's address it, you know, while we're, while we're in that moment. Um, and so today what I want to do is uh, break off a, a piece of what Public Lab works on. Um, a couple years ago, or about a year and a half ago, uh, Open Society Foundations um, was generous enough to provide us funding to um, basically launch an, an advocacy initiative within Public Lab. Um, and so we were able to bring on a, a wonderful uh, person, uh, Gretchen Gerke, who's a, a colleague of mine. Um, and Gretchen and I have since been um, talking uh, and thinking and working through um, different models and structures for how advocacy can be built into uh, uh, civic technology and community science models, which is what we'll talk about today. Um, so just to give you a very quick background on Public Lab, uh, we are um, a global open community. Uh, there's about 6,000 of us that uh, are participating in various facets, whether it's through our online community or in very uh, localized settings. There's a, a nonprofit, um, as we mentioned, and we, we kind of consider the nonprofit to be the, the portion of Public Lab that um, offers infrastructure and support and a backbone for the work that the rest of the community is doing. Um, and what we're interested in working on together is creating low cost, um, and for us this means hopefully about under $150 uh, DIY, so do-it-yourself style tools for environmental monitoring. Um, the nonprofit is specifically interested in working at sites of industrial pollution, um, where many times we see discrimination against certain groups um, based on not being able to advocate for themselves. Um, so just a tiny bit about myself. Um, I'm a, my background um, is in community organizing. Um, this is a, an image of where I found myself working in my early to mid-20s. Um, so this is one of the, the number of oil refineries that lines the Mississippi River um, and Louisiana. Uh, and so I was working with a group called the Louisiana Bucket Brigade. And some of you may know of the, the bucket. Um, the bucket is modeled after um, an EPA SUMA canister. So it's, a, it's literally a five-gallon bucket. Um, there's a, an airbag and you use a vacuum to suck in air samples. Um, and this type of tool allowed uh, residents around these facilities to go out and do grab samples um, when there were specific emission bursts from facilities, typically in the middle of the night when nobody else would catch them. Um, so I worked with communities um, next to these facilities doing things such as asset mapping, um, you know, using these tools to uh, take air samples, uh, build odor logs. Um, and then the, the BP oil spill happened, um, as many of you will remember. 
um, in April of 2010. Working on that vast disaster, vast um, kind of unseen disaster. Um, and I say unseen because uh, one of the, the very first things that we found was that there was a almost full media blackout because it was a heavily corporate controlled event. Um, so within days of the spill happening, um, they put a, a 3,000 foot flight cap over the Gulf of Mexico, uh, basically making it incredibly difficult for people, the media included, to capture good images. Um, and this is where one of uh, the very original public lab uh, projects and collaborations popped up. So I'm lucky enough to have Jeff Warren, who's um, one of the other co-founders of Public Lab, um, and my, my good friend from back in the, the BP spell days in the room. Um, but we started working together, myself in the capacity at the Louisiana a bucket brigade as an organizer, um, Jeff as a graduate student at the MIT Media Lab at the time, um, and we started launching balloons and kites, uh, so, you know, very simple kind of big devices, uh, thousands of feet in the air um, with the top of a two-liter soda bottle, so imagine this magnified by like 20, 10, uh, with basic point-and-shoot cameras in, uh, capturing images uh, literally from the grassroots. So we, we walked beaches, we were in boats, um, capturing images that looked something like this. Um, so we captured hundreds of thousands of images. We documented um, with fisher people, with residents of the various uh, uh, coastal communities of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, um, the oil as it progressed uh, into to different areas in the region. Um, and what this did, it helped to prompt uh, widespread um, interest in the spill, getting documentation in the New York Times, uh, the Globe, the BBC, um, and also helped to provide an alternative community-driven narrative about how the spill was progressing um, on the land um, and giving Gulf Coast residents a, a way to participate and get involved in an event that was, um, you know, literally happening in our backyard. Uh, so taking a, a step back after the spill, um, we started to look at the, the landscape of environmental monitoring um, and, and found what you know, many people know to be true, um, chicken and the fox. Often the hen house of policy is built with a door for the fox. Um, and so this is incredibly clear in the case of environmental monitoring, uh, that the people doing environmental monitoring and uh, providing you know, the science to the people that were being contracted out um, to you know, go and do for instance, soil tests after Hurricane Katrina um, were many times hired by the potential corporate polluters. Um, and otherwise, they were you know, a government agency trying to, to keep up with these polluters um, or research institutions driven by particular grants that may not have been centered on a community-identified concern. Um, and so also, the, you know, on in, in top of this, um, we were also seeing tools that just were not created at a price point accessible um, to the people that, that needed to use them within communities. Uh, so this was one of our, our critiques of the, the field. Um, the next was that uh, we, we continued to look at models, um, pretty traditional in citizen science, um, where scientists are posing problems and asking for data to be given to them uh, to support the questions that they're asking. So not thinking about the, the full data life cycle um, or how data ownership happens and how communities can actually um, utilize data for the questions that they have. Um, so what we did is we, we took a step back um, and we started to think about how we could build a model um, to 
remedy some of this. Um, and what we came up with was um, the, the process that's outlined here um, that works with people through the entirety of research design from asking a question that's rooted within a community, um, which is rooted within a particular problem that's been identified, looking at the landscape of tools, um, so seeing if there's already existing low-cost tools um, and software analysis platforms that can be used to address that question, and if not, uh, collaboratively building them together, um, doing process and interpretation, so actually collecting the data, um, looking at the data, interpreting it, and then working on drawing conclusions and using the data uh, for actionable purposes um, rather than just peer-reviewed papers. Um, so in the, the next several slides, uh, I, I want to talk through um, some of our framework that has um, helped Gretchen and I as we start to think about um, a, a approach to how we can use community-collected data um, to advocate for um, the, the communities and the objectives that we have within um, our neighborhoods. Um, so the, the first is really thinking about the, um, the model of science. Um, so again, citizen science uh, is typically the engagement of the public to participate in scientific research um, in a model that crowdsources data for a study led by professional researchers. Uh, the model that we're using is community science, um, which is community-led scientific exploration and investigation to address community-defined questions allowing for engagement in the entirety of the scientific process, ownership of and access to resultant data, and an orientation towards community goals and action. So it's, it's kind of flipping the model on the head. Uh, the value of open space. So we all like open spaces that look like this. They're beautiful. Um, open space in the, the sense that we're using it, though, um, is what we try to create in our, in our online communities and the way that our online community integrates with uh, people doing very hyper-local work um, in different areas. Um, so we have uh, we've put a lot of effort into um, building a distributed network of practitioners and community researchers um, that are working on creating meaningful integration of technology into community activism. Um, and we do this through processes of collaboration, so coming together, uh, building tools, uh, ideating, thinking through the ethics of, of what it means to engage in different ways with uh, community activists, um, and also cooperation. So, you know, seeing a, a, a change that needs to happen to one of our open hardware designs, breaking it off, taking it back home with you, making some changes, and then sharing it back to the community. Um, so what we've done, and, and Jeff has been an incredible engineer in the entirety of building our platform, um, is that we've created a, an open R&D space on the Public Lab website. Uh, we use three different open uh, licenses that help to secure this process. Um, and then also all of our analysis platforms um, are built around collective data sharing um, and knowledge sharing, not just uh, you know, privatizing and holding data sets separately for yourself. So critical making and uh, you know building in a, a DIY ethos is also incredibly important. So relying on uh, a participation of community practitioners um, in the creation of tools uh, to understand not only how each tool works, but to better understand the process of data collection, how data can be used, and also how we're going to use data towards actionable purposes. We're also um, doing in Public Lab a lot of work around uh, the idea of expertise. Um, so I have a slide up here, um, and I, I call it the era of the generalist. Um, and so scientists in the room, this is with no hate, 
Um, but there really, you know, there is a place for scientists with specialties. Um, but we are really interested in supporting the use of the internet um, for the emergence of generalists. Uh, you know, because of the internet, specialty knowledge has become captured. It's easily accessible to access. Um, and we're, we're really interested in, in seeing a future, um, you know, that kind of harks back to the, the makers and the scientists of old who flew kites to figure out electricity, right? Um, so we're in support of expertise, but we want to find expertise in all of us and figure out how we can mesh that together uh, to strengthen our projects and strengthen the, the questions and ideas that we all have. Uh, so participatory democracy, um, so we, we embed this in all the processes of public lab, um, and we see this as really central to the way that tool development happens within public lab, um, where there's not one centralized person that's making decisions and creating new versions, but it happens in a collaborative fashion. Um, also the way that community science happens uh, is modeled after a participatory democracy. Um, so for instance, collectively deciding what location to go and map, um, the type of flying apparatus you're going to use, if it's a kite, if it's a balloon, if it's you know, a soda bottle top or not, um, the appropriate angle for collecting different images. Um, it, it helps to create a social and technological process in which questioning and discussing and drawing uh, and collecting conclusions um, leads to actual better results. Um, and then finally, Thinking about public participation through uh, this communicative technology um, and really providing space and time uh, to be able to, to go out into the world and engage with people where they are, to create with people where they are. Um, so restoring the human to the center of the discussion, uh, focusing on the user experience, you know, again, in this full data life cycle um, is incredibly important because the data, first and foremost, impacts the people who should be using it or having it used um, for decisions that are directly affecting their communities. All right, so this gets into the more experimental part of everything. Um, so Gretchen and I have been working on uh, developing um, a basically a, a tiered chart. Um, and we're doing this because uh, we've gotten to a point that we, we realize a lot of the work that's happening um, in the, the community science space um, is, again, hyper-local. I mean, uh, you know, within Wisconsin, your, your first step of action might be going to uh, a county board, whereas in Louisiana, uh, to have any type of uh, environmental decisions made, you have to go to the um, Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality. So very different uh, decision-making structures happening all over the place. And that's just two domestic examples. And then we start looking at our global community and we add on so many more layers. Um, so we're, we're interested in building um, this kind of tiered approach uh, to help communities think through the research design that might be most applicable for their communities to use when approaching problems. Um, so. Just to go through this real quick, and then I'm going to kind of go into some of the examples that we have. Um, the three separate tiers that we've broken out into are tier one, which is performative use of community science, tier two, a community project, and tier three, a partner project. Um, the first two columns are uh, the two metric indicators. So this is the role of community science in the process, and then uh, what the scope of the outcomes that the community wants uh, would be. The, the next two, two columns are the, the people who are involved in conducting the projects and then the different tracks. So within each of their, these tiers, there's a couple of different directions and a couple of different pathways that people might use, different types of partnerships. Um, 
So I also just want to uh, put out a couple questions here that as I go through the, the rest of the, the talk, um, you all might kind of uh, ponder on and maybe we could talk about afterwards. Um, so these are, are really great examples of how people that are in geographic proximity to one another um, can interact. Uh, so we have also though this really robust, large group of people uh, that interacts in the online space and, um, you know, acts kind of as a, a knowledge base. Um, but how else can that community fit in to support um, these very hyper-local projects that are happening? Um, the other question uh, is how to, to start um, bringing in, I guess, professional fields. So we have a lot of people that are, um, we have tons of scientists, we have uh, you know, social scientists, organizers, library. We have a very large population of librarians, actually. <laughs> um, technologists, artists, hackers. Uh, but we we don't have um, a, a lot of lawyers, um, people who are engaged in the public health fields, medical doctors, um, which would really strengthen the work that groups are doing. Um, so how how what might be a structure to help engage those groups? Um, and then also, uh, how do we scale lessons learned and best practices that are, are driven by these very local in-person examples um, and help them uh, be used by other communities when they're trying to replicate similar processes? So those are some of the things that we're still thinking through and, and would love your thoughts on. Um, Okay, so uh, the first here, um, the performative aspects of community science. Um, and I think a lot of people from Berkman, I think uh, we had a conversation way back. Um, I, as an activist, I've had a, um, a lot of trouble thinking about the performance of data collection um, because I'm very, uh, you know, use data for specific results. Um, but I now see that there is a, a particular place for um, the use of open hardware, software, and data um, in a performative sense. Um, so we've seen this happen a lot in our community uh, through learning, teaching, prototyping, and exploration. Um, and typically, when people are acting in a performative manner, um, they're looking at a non-specific environmental research question. So it's more broadly, um, what would this look like in a body of water, not what specific contaminant might be found in this body of water. Um, again, thinking about exploratory learning. So how can we engage students um, or how can we engage the general public in um, this kind of beautiful data visualization um, that we're seeing? Uh, and then also focusing on the tool as a visualizing process. Um, so you know, the, the use of a, a big balloon um, or the use of, this is a thermal uh, fishing bob, so it's a, a device that you can drop into a body of water and basically paint the water with because there's a, an LED emitting. Um, so, you know, thinking about how visual the tool is rather than uh, the actual data that's being collected and how to visualize that data. Um, and a couple of the, the strong points in this we see are that it can be uh, valuable for environmental communications, um, so helping to bring in conversations uh, with the media, um, and then also in general bringing uh, new people to the process of community science um, and you know, open hardware software uh, development practices. Um, and just as an example of this, uh, specifically in public lab, um, this is a, a tool called the Koki. Um, the, the data resolution is uh, generally lost within the, the process of using the Koki. Um, it's a, a tool that you can dip in water and it emits a frequency. So it's, it's about experiencing um, what uh, the, the different conductivity might sound like. Um, and this was specifically developed as a, as a performative piece um, to, to teach people with. 
The next tier is uh, the community project. Um, and community projects are really predicated on uh, disrupting institutionalized hierarchies um, of production and access to knowledge. Um, so this is a, a way for people to say, within our community, we have the tools and we have the ability, we have the understanding of methods um, to be able to do our own projects. <clears throat> Um, so it does require tools, uh, the ability to use and interpret data. Uh, so the nonprofit of Public Lab sees a lot of our focus within here um, in creating a methodology that can be brought in and uh, strongly utilized um, so that as a staff member or, um, you know, another uh, potential partner in a project won't always have to be present, that communities can do things on their own. Um, the other part of this is that uh, these projects are entirely conceived um, and created, done by the communities, um, specifically looking at community-focused goals. Uh, there's a couple of different tracks that we've identified. Um, one of them is the unique individual issue, uh, and the second is pervasive or endemic issues. So the first, an example, might be the BP oil spill. So major disaster happening very quickly. Um, the uh, example of the second might be um, uh, continuing issues with a community that's neighboring a hog farm uh, in North Carolina. <clears throat> um, so what we see coming from uh, community projects, um, outcomes might be uh, community knowledge production, uh, data literacy, media engagement, stakeholder engagement, uh, ecosystem management, behavior changes, and then general civic participation. Um, so as an example, and the last slide was also a, a picture, um, there's a group in uh, the Burj al-Shamali refugee camp in southern Lebanon. It's a camp that's been around since 1948. Um, and originally, uh, Palestinian refugees um, went to this camp. It has um, kind of bloomed in size to about 20,000 people. Um, and the camp, uh, members of the camp are uh, residents of the camp were interested in using um, the the aerial mapping tool so going back to the the BP spill those same kites and balloons um, to start thinking about um, the distribution of space and resources in the camp uh, so that they can plan community enriching green spaces um, so the the three objectives that they had in mind were uh, creating visible visibility and awareness uh, creating dialogues amongst um, residents of the camp that might have different opinions about where and how to use green spaces, um, and then working on improving camp conditions uh, based on the dialogues that they created um, using this community collected data. All right, so the, the third one, um, near and dear to my heart, uh, this is the Tier 3 partner project, um, and this example is in Plaquemines Parish, Louisiana. Uh, so this is the United Bulk Terminal, just to give you a sense of what you're looking at. It's a, a terminal that... Um, there's uh, been a wonderful coalition that's been um, working on issues surrounding, you can see coal dumping directly into the Mississippi River. That would be an issue. Um, so the, the partnership uh, project is um, usually a basis for further investigation using community science. So there's impacts both within the community and also beyond the communities that are directly adjacent to, for instance, this facility. Um, and the, the three things that we see within community projects, or I'm sorry, partner projects, um, is that there's still a community ID objective at the center of the work that's happening. So, um, you know, in this instance, the, the communities neighboring this facility, um, they were having issues with air quality, uh, and then also the, the dumping directly into uh, the Mississippi River. 
Um, community science can play a pivotal role. Um, it can be used as both an indicator or a screening method to help for uh, to help call for larger systematic studies, for instance. Um, and third, uh, still in the community science model, the community always invites partners. Um, so there's there isn't a, a researcher coming in and saying, you know, we need to do something about this area. Um, there's a, a direct invitation from the people that are being um, affected by the polluting source. <clears throat> Um, and then outcomes of this tier three uh, partner project might be things such as uh, permanent enforcement or revision, um, environmental remediation, litigation, uh, investigative media, um, policy adaptations, um, things such as that. So just to, to get a bit more into this example, um, so this is United Bulk um, that's situated on the Mississippi and Plaquemines Parish, which is one of the, the most southern parishes in Louisiana. Um, and there's a, a coalition, the, the Clean Gulf Commerce Coalition, that's a, a number of different groups um, that began working with the communities in proximity uh, to this facility. So this is a, an image um, that two members stood on the levee and captured using a kite, um, which shows direct dumping um, from the conveyor belt of the bulk terminal into the Mississippi on what's called a good weather day. Um, so a good weather day means that you know it's it's sunny, there's no storm conditions, so you don't actually have a reason to be dumping, um, whereas I guess you're allowed to on a bad weather day. Um, so, uh, using Im this image um, and images such as this, uh, the, the coalition um, was able to obtain a consent decree from the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality, um, and it would have come with a $16,000 fine. Uh, this was not acceptable to the coalition. Um, they didn't think that that was um, uh, you know, a harsh enough response. Um, and so they then partnered using this data with the Tulane University Environmental Law Clinic. Um, and they were able to uh, sue under a um, citizen supervision of the Clean Water Act. Um, and they ended up settling in August of 2015, so this past year. Um, but there was $75,000 in fines. Uh, and the, the settlement included um, that they would have to engage with the coalition. Uh, and so the coalition was able to, um, will be able to do community monitoring going forward. Uh, and if they have specific complaints, they can uh, leverage fines against United Bulk. Uh, and it also required um, the very specific uh, cleanup that's been needed since, I think, 1984. Um, so this is a, an example of that, that tier three partner project, um, taking community science, civic technology, um, and building it out into a, um, a larger impact. All right, so that's um, what I have for y'all. Uh, thanks for listening, and I would, I'd love to, um, I guess, open it up for questions, discussion, um, what have you. <laughs> Do you have any issues about like our sensor calibration or what do you do if there's like lots of people, lots of people using these open source tools and with a photo it's, you know, a photo is a photo and it might be out of focus or whatnot, but you can usually tell the picture of, but if it's like a sensor measuring something, then how do you know if the sensor data is accurate from some person? Right. Um, so we've recently, kind of up until the last couple of years ago, um, we were primarily doing analog tools. Um, so we've recently started building sensors. Um, one of them is a, a PM sensor um, that in the Sandfrack area um, of uh, Wisconsin. 
Um, and one of the, the techniques that we're using is pairing it against uh, different sensing devices um, that do PM sensing, and then also working with the EPA um, and their research and development triangle um, and Durham to pair against the sensors that they have to start looking at calibration. Can you talk a little bit more about what happened with the refugee camp using the balloons and kites for uh, aerial imaging? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's still very active. It's uh, a project that I think just started in August-ish of this year. Um, so the objective is that they want to be able to, uh, once they've finished compiling the images and doing the, the mapping um, that they want to have completed, um, to be able to, to go back and call community meetings um, and begin working on uh, plotting out the, the green space as they want to see it. Yeah, I'll, it's updated constantly on the website, so I'll, I'll point you to it. <laughs> yes? I'm not a conservative, but I, what I, my comment, my question is about, you were talking about BP, um, and it would seem to me that the, the, the rules regarding commercial access to public lands really have needed to change for quite some time. Um, you know, with the scenario that you talked about, I mean, was, is outrageous. I mean, I'm a conservative. I don't, I don't have... You know, but this is just, you know, and this has been going on for quite some time. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that you mean, why the hell was BP allowed to get away with that? Yeah, that... <laughs> I heard the story on, you know, I, you know mm -hmm. I heard the story on the radio, you know, and all of a sudden it was a complete PR campaign, you know, but, <clears throat> you know, it's, we're talking about public land, I mean, which is like half the West, and, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a big issue. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, and you know, in Louisiana, our uh, I always say, like, as an as an environmentalist, which I really actually don't consider myself, um, we are always approaching um, these issues as one of public health um, rather than as conserving environments, um, because the oil and gas uh, industry has basically taken over um, the entire well, the majority of Louisiana, but you know, specifically the southern half. Um, and it's a, I mean, it's a highly contested issue, and I, you know, I completely agree with you. Um, and that's what we're. The contract should say this is ours and not yours. Mm -hmm. Right. Mary, did you have a question? I did. Um, this is a great work. So let me just start with that. This is like so cool. Uh, I, I had a question, and it's informed by I've been doing some work with uh, Edith, Edith Law and Alex Williams, who studies citizen science and. Uh, scientist resistance to it. Mm -hmm. And so I had some thoughts about that I can share with you offline. Yeah. But I wondered if you've done any projects that maybe for the, the folks who are at a distance who want to help, I'm kind of air quoting that, but is there a way to engage them through maybe creating DIY kits, so kind of care packages? We do. Sweet. Yes. I think we, that's brilliant. Yeah, we, um, uh, I'd say 2000 and the end of 2012. Um, so we've part of our model um, to to fund our work during the BP spill. We did a um, a Kickstarter, raised eight thousand um, dollars, and that was kind of a model that we sort of nascently built in. Um, and in the end of uh, uh, 2012, we did one for our DIY spectrometer, um, and uh, not only raised a substantial amount of money to you know kind of kidify and like launch this tool off the ground but also you know attracted um 1600 people that would not have known about public lab previously um so we've used crowdfunding as a way to um, garner support 
But in doing that specific campaign, um, we also then launched a kids program. So that's kind of a, a an arm of Public Lab. Um, the earned revenue supports the nonprofit, uh, but it also helps to take versions of our kits that are being developed within the community, um, put them into you know literally a box um, that comes with you know hand illustrated um, guides, uh, tutorials that you can visit online, um, and uh, the the tools that you put together yourself. Um, so it still comes in pieces because we want people really to be able to experience um, what it's like to to you know know the tool intimately. Question: yeah. Have you had any? Have you thought about or had any luck in um, maybe redirecting people who are, again, at a distance to um, to make them hyper local? Like to see, is there a way for them to um, look around their region or their? Yeah, you know, we do. So we have you know, a matching the, of sorts. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think we'd love um, suggestions from people on how to do this. But um, built into our model is um, we have a, a group of organizers. So I think there's about 70, 75 of them. Um, so these are are people that are um, kind of uh, deeply engaged in community science or um, in working with public lab um, that are, are spread globally. Um, and then we also support kind of it, it ranges from like 15 to 20 different chapters. Um, so that's a model we see as um, incredibly beneficial and has been um, really the, the keystone of what has um, sustained the projects um, in local spaces. Uh, but, we, you know, things like, can we put up a community map and can you, like, link into um, somebody that is, you know, within 10 miles of you? Um, those are things that we've kind of brainstormed but would love, you know, more suggestions on as well. So, well Thank you for the great work. We had actually spoken with Jeff a uh, program we just put together uh, on scientists connecting scientists to communities mm -hmm. kind of forum with some of the ideas the questions that you pose trying to explore some of them thinking about how do you scale up something which is so local right. and also because every location has so many different dimensions to it that this is not usually very translatable so one question is you know is scalability the right model to even think about right. this and maybe there is no good way to scale it right. and uh, secondly given that there are so many pockets of where there is um, complete environmental abuse or people are being exposed to pollution for decades and hundreds of years and this happens all the time in all parts of the country and the world is there a way where we are seeing things conditions on the ground and bringing about change that we can, but also using that to elevate attention to how we need reform at the national, federal mm -hmm. level, because beyond the local politics of it, there's also, you know, there are laws on the books which are right. not functioning the way they should. Right. I mean, I always say that um, using the, like, very general case of uh, climate change, you know, if we don't, if we don't start those conversations locally um, and engage people where they can see it directly happening and, and then leverage that to change, the policies that we have that you know are specifically related to climate change, we're not going to make leeway. You know, um, so I think that that's a. I love your comment though, also about um, can we replicate in scale? Because that's, I mean, that's what I've been coming up against is like this brick wall that I, you know, I want to like hurdle over, but it's just not happening. Um, so yeah, and I'd, I'd love to talk more with you about these afterwards. Cool. So I'm gonna grab you back there. This is really great work, and thank you for all of it. Um, I mean, on the scaling question, I mean, do you see any sort of community-based efforts, say, in Los Angeles with the methane leak or in Flint in Michigan with yeah. the, the lead poisoning? I mean, are there efforts springing up? And sort of companion question, if you could clone your organization, what would you be doing there? <gasps> Ooh. 
that's a big one. Um, so yeah, in the in Porter Ranch, um, I was actually just there this uh, past weekend in that area, which is crazy. Um, there, we haven't had groups that have um, have been using you know community science. Um, if there were, and if people were interested, we'd support them. Um, but we we really stick with the you know don't do a drop in. Um, that's important to the way that we function. Um, and yeah, Flint, Michigan is. Can we talk about that? Yeah. It is. Thank you, Mary. I appreciate that. I can say that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then if uh, we could clone and replicate. Jeff, you want to take that question? But, I mean, like, if a group in an area that is affected sees what other public lab communities have done or other public lab associate communities have done and say, and say, we can use that model. We can do something like that. We can follow, you know, we can build on that. And they adopt some of these things. They're welcome to be part of public lab. And that's the biggest way to scale, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, personally, I'm also very interested in um, just digging in even more to the, the advocacy end of what we're doing. There's a long way to go um, in terms of, you know, EPA's recognition of, uh, you know, like the question that was asked over here about calibration. There's a long way to go. Uh, a lot of work that we have to do in that sector, um, you know, using using community data um, in a in a way to you know push for litigation when it needs to happen or be able to be used in, in pre lit circumstances and and then make these broader national level policy changes. We have, I mean, we're working on it, but we need more people that are doing this and interested in it. Um, and it's, you know, it's this kind of data collection has been seen as a, a way to fill gaps, um, you know, as our, our government's uh, dwindling resources or pulled away resources um, have, have taken effect. Um, we think it's a really powerful way to, to start filling in some of that. And um, so join the cause. <laughs> yes. I, I really love the model and, and the, uh, the values underlying it, um, but I, I have a historical question. I don't know, does it, do you or others in public lab have any time to look at um, things like the work that Jane Adams and Florence Kelly did 100 something years ago? Uh, because, you know, they, like the Hull House maps, yeah. that they address uh, spread of cholera and cocaine right. and population measures and all kinds of things. Uh, and I, it's obviously quite different uh, situation and quite different technologies but I just wondered if you've if you've had a chance to even think about those yeah we I mean definitely we um, one of the there's seven co-founders of public lab so we we had a lot of different um, backgrounds coming to the group and one of our co-founders uh, specifically uh, did science and technology studies um, so her background was very focused on that so we, we have foundational underpinnings that look back to um, to those moments, um, and I, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but uh, we're we're really interested in thinking about how we go back to those times when science wasn't so professionalized that it excluded um, the voices of people and it excluded uh, the ability of people to understand um, these basic things that were happening in their communities. Um, so definitely a, a kind of core tenant of of who we are. Bad things like Jane Adams being somewhat excluded from the University of Chicago right. because she wasn't part of the formal science. Right. It would also be interesting to compare. I think. Yeah. Um, I think Gary. Um, just had a question about how are you measuring and reporting um, challenges and successes and and sort of 
looping that back into your system of, of developing yeah. products and resources and things like that? Do you have a form that folks fill out? Do you have a survey? Or? So we have 33 mailing lists. Um, it's a large amount of conversations that happen, um, but the, a lot of them are tool specific. And so that's where um, we try to, as much as possible, have um, very transparent conversations. So when um, there's an issue with a tool uh, or there's a, a development hurdle, um, you know, that's it's something that happens transparently in that space um, or is posted as a research note on public lab um, so we can reference it, go back to it. Um, and then their versions, like I said, with the, the kids program. Um, so that's really kind of a, a key piece um, of how we work together. Um, do you want to, he's our research director, he could probably say more about that as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I'm not sure. Um, is there a particular example that you're interested in? Or? Uh, no, I'm just wondering in terms of, you know, what, what is community feedback, you know, and how do you bring that into your process and then make alterations or adjustments that you need to make or, or not? Do you have that sort of two-way dialogue or? Yeah, I think the hard part is that we're, in a way, we're trying to not just get community feedback, but try to get the community to act to be the developers of these things. So we, there's no way that, you know, the staff of like, you know, 10 something people uh, can, can actually do the bulk of the research and development. So what we tried to do is make a place where people can do it and set patterns and scaffolding such that that happens. And, you know, staff are still involved in, in research and development, of course, and we, we also make things into kits, which is sort of a different skill set. But, one thing we've been um, sort of refining is, is what we're calling open open hardware. And basically, a lot of open hardware, open source hardware, are is done by companies who um, develop a product, release it, and then also release the plans. And what we're talking about is coming up with a, a methodology so that a group of people who aren't formally affiliated uh, can can work on hardware designs to you know meet certain specs and so forth. In a, in a transparent way, and it, it's it's very hard work. I mean, this is something that is much easier in software. Um, in hardware, it means like whenever you run into trouble, you have to loudly complain to everyone else and ask for help. Uh, you also have to continuously document your own work, which is an enormous burden above and beyond the actual doing of you know actually making things. Um, and it's a difficult case to make to people that are working really hard with all of their available time resources that they should stop and ask for and tell everyone what's going on because in the long game that's going to that's going to pay off you know getting more people involved is the only way we're going to solve all these problems so yeah I and mean, we're trying to make build you know social systems and habits and, and uh, things around that practice um, especially sort of reifying the asking of questions i think that's the thing that is most underappreciated in R&D and, and often in the sciences. It's like, if you can ask a question, and if you can then articulate that question and, and continue to iterate on asking a more and more detailed set of questions, then that's like, uh, I mean, that's the heart of the entire matter. And we need to really be uh, building that up as a, as, uh, as a form of making, you know, the asking of questions. Because we can't just rely on people who are saying, "Oh, I know everything," or you know, the sort of uh, you know uh, uh, tyranny of the experts who, who dominate the process, as opposed to people who really know the problem and can sort of uh, iteratively 
explore the problem space, because that's what's really going to lead to a good solution. So I guess just one thing I'm missing is like, how, how do you guys define success? That's a, <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a recent example for it's that hard. is we, uh, we have this oil testing kit trying to distinguish different oil pollutants and we um, have been in the process of testing the oils and testing the, the kit at the mm -hmm. same time. We're basically trying to do, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like a circular problem, right? So um, <clears throat> I think just, you know, breaking it down to very small uh, sections and, and tackling them one at a time but at the end of the day I think you have to look at outcomes and I think that's why Gretchen is involved yeah I mean I would also say so the evaluation component is something that we um, that we've kind of been harking on for the last year because we're, we're a new model um, that's pulling together a lot of kind of disparate things and trying to make it work um, so we have a, a three-year evaluation project going right now um, to to do, you know, a snapshot evaluation of uh, public lab, um, you know, what the community looks like, because 6,000 people, that's great, but we're more interested in how deeply engaged uh, people are in structures rather than the numbers. Um, and then building an evaluation framework that we can use within public lab to do our own metrics building. Uh, and then also uh, evaluation system that we can share out with other groups that are interested in working in this model um, that they can use to, to build into their programming. So. We'll continue to share information as it, it comes, but um, we're still in those kind of early phases. Yeah. Um, uh, your examples uh, show that you have worked uh, in situations after the disaster. Mm -hmm. Have you done any kind of work before a disaster? So preventative type work. I mean, that's that's the the direction that we're heading. Um, we. We've been around as an organization uh, and as a group for going on six years now. Um, the technology development portion of it. So we're, you know, our, our initial question around like why aren't there tools that are cost accessible for people um, was the the first hurdle that we needed to tackle. And so we've gotten to a point now that we have when there is an issue um, that we might see coming down the pipeline or that might you know arise, um, such as a. Um, Let's go back to the hog facility. Uh, you know, we're gonna have a new facility built directly adjacent to X community. Um, the hope is then that we have the tools that people can use uh, to do baseline measurements and um, to start doing work ahead of time rather than in reaction to, um, which is, you know, it's really important and especially public health work. Yes, ma'am. You talked about looking at outcomes as a way to see whether your programs are working. One of the ways that you can look at outcomes is by looking at how people or behaviors change. Mm -hmm. Is this something that you would extend to monitoring people as well in addition to environments and how would you think about that part of the process because obviously there are a lot of uh, public health implications that could be beneficial but a lot of challenges as well. Right. So I think your question, um, like in our in our tier two uh, with the community projects, that's a, a very key point where that comes in around, um, you know, skills lead to, to aptitude behavior changes. Um, and that can be, you know, within the way that we view an area or if we're talking about, um, you know, air monitoring, a way that we um, expose ourselves or don't expose ourselves. Um, so we see that, you know, coming in within the, the community project setting. Is that what you're referring to or is that... Yeah, but then if the data is available, then you're also monitoring very personal data about people. Does that go into a publicly available database? 
how do you think through the issues of making that kind of data available? Right. Um, so we work kind of on a, a community to community to community basis um, with data. So if there's if it's a, a private um, set of information, um, so I can give an example. There's a um, one of our organizers has worked in Silwan, um, which is uh, basically you know the Israeli-Palestinian border, um, doing aerial imagery with uh, youth in the area to document and map their community. Um, and because it was identified by that community as being sensitive, um, it was not released you know into the public domain. So that's something that we can control. Um, we're working on a, a platform right now called Where We Breathe. Um, so this is really one of our kind of first forays into um, asking people for personal health data or like giving people a space to share that kind of personal health data. Um, so we've gone through, um, and Jeff is one of the developers on it, so you can probably talk more about the, the privacy aspect. Um, but, you know, going through uh, an entire, uh, like an entire privacy plan and, um, you know, thinking about what it would mean to like offer a place both for a study versus a, a place for people to, to share that information, um, what's available for others to see, how can people <clears throat> connect, um, because that's the purpose of it is to, to connect people that are having um, similar exposure issues. Um, yeah, so it's a, but it's, you know, kind of per project and uh, per community that we work with. Yeah, I, I have a little, I have a question about a little bit of um, your relationship with the government or more like the lawmaking process because it seems like your work is definitely for making a change mm -hmm. by data-driven, uh, data-driven change. But realistically, in order to make a real change in the world, we need to change the law or policies. I'm not sure if you mentioned about it. I just wonder how you channel your efforts, these kind of all innovative efforts, into the lawmaking process, mm -hmm. or what is your relationship with legislative body at the local or any federal level? Yeah, and I think um, this gets back to your your comment about um, you know maybe there maybe there isn't replication or scale on a local level, but that that type of like bigness of it can happen in um, that that advocacy towards policy change or law yeah or changes with the law because right now I mean we um, you know any type of pre-lit or lit work um, or any type of work that engages with policies is very it's incredibly local and it's incredibly issue specific their additive are they accepting or kind of how, how is the hi what is their attitude like towards your work? Of, of government groups? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I mean, Louisiana, don't get me started. Um, you know, uh, but for instance, we have a, a really strong positive relationship with um, members of the, the EPA, especially um, in their research and development group. Um, we've seen um, the EPA still within citizen science, like, you know, here, research question, you help us collect data, but moving towards um, the recognition of uh, community monitoring methods and tools um, to, to be a part of their work. Um, you know, so we're kind of just, we're trying to, to figure out um, what kind of relationship building we can do. Um, but it's, you know, it's always, especially um, in environmental policy, you get into stakeholders that are very purely business-minded, and as soon as there's a, an issue that might affect the economic profit of a corporation, you're, you know, you're going to um, not make some people happy. And so, um, you know, I can't make a blanket statement about our relationship, uh, especially in, in local areas, but it's, you know, it's rough going sometimes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mary? I wanted to speak to you as a spoken. Um, a 
yeah, yeah, uh, I had a question. Um, continuing the conversation on success, definition of success yeah. and outcome. Um, how does the community participate in defining those? And are there mm -hmm. ways, I mean, there's clear success, it's like a policy change or some kind right. of, um, you know, um, economic, you know, uh, uh, decision that, or, but then there are also other less, are, have you seen other types of definitions of success being um, created by the community? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, and using community science and these kind of participatory methods, um, it's it's really broad ranging. Um, <clears throat> so the skills and aptitudes, you know, changes um, that she brought up was is one of them. Um, so even, you know, being able to use data to have uh, a seat as a stakeholder um, with, you know, uh, the executive committee of the corporation and your local DP or DQ. Um, that can be seen as that's that is my success and that's what I wanted to achieve. Um, having you know ten people show up to my community meeting because I'm seeing you know something alarming in my children um, and I you know I want to figure out if this is something that might be a trend that's starting to happen. That could be a success. Um, you know media stories uh, in Louisiana uh, communities you know push for relocation. So having a corporation, you know pay for the entire movement of their their neighborhood to a totally different place. Um, but those are all, you know, very community defined. Um, and that's our, our goal is to support um, what those actions look like. Uh, we build in, um, we, we build a lot of workshop structures. Um, and one of our, our very first ones that we, you know, um, uh, suggest to people is like, sit down and think about like why you're why you're taking data like why you're collecting information because we don't want to promote information gathering um, without a specific purpose in mind um, Mary sorry um, I was gonna ask if you've had any um, luck or any interest in, in reaching out to like service learning classes or using that as a mechanism for maybe a framing that is more about participatory mm -hmm research and participatory action research versus yeah. community science, which unfortunately I think kind of still leaves open this idea that there's the science science. Yeah. That's something that would kind of break that framework, a different paradigm. And I, at least in some of the best cases, there are plenty of worst cases, but I feel like service learning can create some of that. Yeah, I, I think that that's interesting. Um, one of the things uh, that I've definitely noticed is um, we don't so we don't do interns um, at all, uh, and part of the reason for not having those kind of um, formal relationships is that um, we find that when people like jump in and it's like here's a project for you to work on, um, there's not that they're not coming with that framework of like I'm in a community to collaborate. I'm leaving my expertise. I'm leaving my science. I'm leaving my engineering at the door, um, and you know. I'm working with a group of people, uh, and I think we've talked about uh, like Gwen Ottinger has a really wonderful um, case study that she wrote about um, specifically engineers in service learning positions and how hard it is for them because of society's expectations of what is, uh, an engineer and a scientist is to leave that behind when they're doing um, you know these like I'm here to to work and help with the community. Um, so I, I definitely see it as like a, a really interesting place to to start. Um, to start breaking down some of those barriers. Um, and I'd love to, if you have suggestions about how to do that, and I think the, the two of you also seem like you're working on that as well. Um, that'd be great. Yes? Uh, yes, I, I found fascinating this process of knowledge production and learning that happens in this module of uh, 
community science. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about like youth engagement uh, that has happened if you have done like partnerships with the schools or yeah. uh, youth organizations because the even the tools that you create and the kids have this playful element mm -hmm. that is very appealing to you so to youth so I'm curious to hear more about that yeah I mean when we um, when we kind of conceptualized public, public lab um, we were not thinking about youth engagement mm -hmm. uh, I mean hardly whatsoever we you know when people would bring their kids and you were at their barn raising, um, there was kids there. Um, but I think we would still be sort of surprised when, you know, we'd get a tweet that was like, hey, my kid's using your spectrometer for a science fair project. Oh, right, yeah, parts and crafts in Somerville, Massachusetts. Jeff did a, this is the early version of our spectrometer doing a, a children's workshop. Um, but I think it, it wasn't innate because we're like, environmental justice, you know, we need data that's impactful. However, um, especially with the development of our kits program, um, I mean, we've distributed something, I think it's like 28,000 kits, uh, and a lot of them are going uh, to different educational groups, ranging from K to 12 to higher ed. Um, and there's also, especially, I mean, in the United States specifically, uh, this kind of um, shift that we're starting to see where, where people are interested in connecting uh, learning, so science learning, back into specific uh, community, you know, issues that kids might experience mm -hmm. as a way to teach science mm -hmm. in a stronger way. Um, and so kind of with that, we're, we're starting to think about how can we, you know, without diverging too far um, and spreading our staff, you know, mm -hmm. too thin, how can we uh, build in a stronger support network for, you know, uh, K to 12 education as well. Mm -hmm. Um, sorry, Matthew, I think, do you still have a oh, question? Or? Yeah, um, so I was just curious because you talked about the different demographics that you're engaging in some of the areas where you're having trouble, but I was just curious um, which demographics really took to it. Were they a lot of retirees, um, people sure. that are already like educated, or were there a lot of like hacker types that maybe went to vocational schools and things like that? <laughs> um, so I think, it, well, it's... You know, our online community and our offline community have, uh, and I, I split them because that really, there is a, a bit of a demographic difference. Um, however, I think we lean towards with our online community, and I'm just, I, I've looked at like our organizer group um, and looked at percentages of people who I would put in whatever categories, um, and then <laughs> hoped it's been a larger reflection of, you know, those other 6,000 people. This is why we're building an evaluation framework. Um, but we, I mean, we probably have a, a good, like, 45% of people that have some type of research interest, um, whether they're affiliated with the institution or not. So, um, I mean, people who are, like, from a, a, a DIY biohacker space would be included in that group. Um, I would think about 20% um, are community organizers. Um, but I would up that percentage uh, because a lot of the people who are community organizers in public lab don't participate online. Um, so they're, you know, that very hyper-local group. Um, and then we have a, a kind of um, DIY maker pool slash librarian slash educators that makes up the, the rest of the, the demographic. Um, so when we have better numbers on that, I will, I'll let you know. But it's, a, it's an interesting question. And... Um, uh, one that I think has changed over the years as well, um, but that we try to be very conscious of because we don't want to lean too far towards one expertise and, you know, cut out other voices. So, yeah. 
your examples in this discussion helped me, I, I think, understand something I was sort of puzzling about, the difference between citizen science and community science. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking of my own community, which is in Cape Cod, and, and admittedly a somewhat privileged community, but where there's less of a social divide than you might find, say, in the Boston area or in Louisiana. And as a result, the there are many people, citizens, who are themselves scientists right. Right. or lawyers, uh, and there are uh, scientists who are part-time residents or want to be, and there, the, there are, there's a Harbor Conference every fall, and where citizens present, school children present, scientists mm -hmm. present, and it's the lines between who comes up with the question, who controls the data, mm -hmm. start to blur, which I think in a good way, because the, I think the citizen science, community science, it's not only two different models mm -hmm. for what to do, it's also a strong indicator of social and economic divides Completely. In, the, in the country. Yeah. And um, that somehow, ultimately, I guess I, I would like to see us find ways to, I mean, this is a little bit further out, but like to find ways to address those divides as much as uh, having, I mean, I love the community science model, but I just, I think we also, need to think about um, those, those larger economic issues. Yeah, I mean, early um, after the, the BP spill, we had a group uh, very early on, um, like in winter of 2011, in the Gowanus Canal in Brooklyn, which is an EPA Superfund site, uh, pick up the, you know, kind of look at the methodologies we used and then use them in Brooklyn. Um, and I just, I remember myself having a kind of like a personal quandary around um, capacity uh, and like thinking about resources and you know things like money and time burden uh, between these two different groups um, and it was a you know we my my setting that I've come from is uh, very rooted in environmental justice um, so looking at disproportionate effects of pollution because of um, lots of <coughs> extenuating factors um, that's heavily you know, kind of bounded in the south, um, and thinking about the differences and um, what I was seeing in the Guanas Canal, um, which was a you know kind of like you're seeing with Cape Cod, which uh, at the time 2011 was kind of an up and coming uh, Brooklyn community where people had the the time um, and the ability and some of the financial resources to to spend um, you know doing this type of uh, monitoring and um, and you know question building, um, and so I think it's yeah it's it's definitely um, you know, something that we're, we're also very engaged in is, you know, trying to expand these definitions. And so thanks for, I'm glad that that triggers something for you. We have time for one last question. Uh, yes. Um, so one of the other things that we struggle with quite a bit is we also have an online community of roughly 18,000 scientists mm -hmm. and engineers broadly defined and we are trying to figure out ways in bringing them close to their communities on projects that communities have needs for um, in terms of any sort of social, uh, scientific and technical expertise. The, the problem that we run up against is it's, it takes really a very long time for the formulation of the question itself. So I wonder if you experience that or it's as simple as my water looks contaminated, can you help me measure the pollutants in it or uh, the quality of it? Um, I'll just give you an example quickly so that it puts it in some context. We are working with a group in Houston and um, it's in the H greater Houston area, includes Manchester and the Ship Channel. And uh, we've been working with them for 
for I think close to six months at this point, trying to formulate what is, how can we bring scientists and local scientists and engineers to help address the cumulative impacts of all the polluting industries that they're exposed to have been for decades. And um, that's a challenge that we've seen in Houston, in Southern California, in uh, Minnesota, the actually how to define the question and right. then recruit help from scientists, engineers, researchers. Have you run, uh, run into problems like this or how do you go about addressing them? Um, I think maybe not exactly that problem. Uh, and it's, it's not necessarily a problem, but um, I think one of the things that we have seen is that the question tends to change. You know, environmental crises are can be very like slow moving and take a long time. Um, and for instance, so we've been working in uh, Western Wisconsin around um, uh, uh, frac sand, sand frac, frac sand, um, for the last couple of years. And the the original question um, that community groups had was around like what what am I breathing, you know, from this fine silica dust? Um, and there was no the DNR was not doing any monitoring. Um, but then, you know, like about seven, eight months into us working on that, that very specific thing related um, to their concern, it switched over to, well, what do we, how do we know like what's coming um, into our water from these mining sites? And so then there's a, an interest in a, a kind of um, a new click that we also built on to the project in the end. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, I think it's, um, Part of what we've done is build up resource sets that help people um, think through like the process to get to that question. Um, then staying with it, I think, is like the the part for us that that gets a bit more complicated. Um, but I love, I mean, I'd love to think through specific examples. I mean, Houston's a, a really interesting one. So, sorry. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Thanks everybody for coming.